Hey everybody, The Talking Book is a non-profit audiobook recording studio in Asheville, North Carolina. If you want to make an audiobook, go to thetalkingbook.org, that's thetalkingbook.org. Check out these amazing writers, narrators, indie publishers. Come to Asheville, we record books in a booth, here's the show. I'm glad you're here today. My name is Chris Hartram of the Talking Book Podcast. Um, we record books, and this podcast puts out readings from authors, my favorite authors, probably yours too, a lot of good ones. Um, it means a lot to me that you're here listening right now. It means a lot to my family, and it means a lot to the, to the authors and the publishers that spend their lives and their blood making this literature for you uh, and, the, and themselves. But, you know, what's new? The entire month of October, I watch nothing but horror movies. As I said, we do that every year. Um, what else? Here are the movies that I'll recommend. If you want to watch some horror movies, I'll recommend these right now. Videodrome, The Brood, Nosferatu the Vampire, The Thing, obviously, Reanimator, Sleepaway Camp. Those are my choices for you. Also, uh, oh yeah, this is not small. The election happened and the piece of shit is leaving, it looks like. So there's something to be happy about. And of course, things aren't going to be perfect by a long shot, but there's a collective sigh of relief around the world. So that's something. Good job, everybody. But uh, anyway, you came here to listen to uh, a badass writer's read, not a dumb guy talk about horror movies and politics. So... Today I have a reading from Brad Phillips. I like Brad a lot, and I like Brad's new writing a lot. So recently, uh, we've put out quite a few from his novel that will be coming out from Tyrant Books in the nearest future. Uh, you're about to hear one. Uh, this will be the fourth excerpt of his new work. Um, it's exciting. I like doing it. Hopefully more to come. Uh, and okay, without further ado, here's Brad Phillips reading from his forthcoming novel, The Secret History of the History Channel. The following is an excerpt from my upcoming novel, provisionally titled The Secret History of the History Channel. Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine, November 1998, Married to His Murderer, a Pal Braxton story. Chapter 3, Background Checks. Their affair truly began 20 minutes after Bobby left the party where he'd encountered a much different, domesticated Jamie. She found him parked on the street, told his companion to, quote, get fucked, then got into his Acura, where they spoke for close to an hour. After briefly venting her anger, Jamie asked him what he thought he'd been put on earth for, what he felt to be his primary gift, his most innate skill. He told her that from all available evidence, it seemed to be ruining women's lives. Driving home, he considered whether this was true and concluded it most likely was. However, this didn't mean it was a skill he actively employed or that he'd ever intended to ruin any woman's life. Scanning the handful of memories he had of the previous few decades, many involved images, words, and scenes directly related to female ruination by way of romantic disaster. He could remember hearing variations of, quote, I gave you the best years of my life at least three times, but could only assign a face to two of the women who'd uttered these words. His ex-wife, Katerina, screamed the sentence in his face, 
while boarding a flight to Frankfurt from Glasgow Airport. He never saw her again. They were meant to fly together. To f- they were meant to fly together to Frankfurt, the certifiable asshole of Germany. He tore up his ticket and returned to Glasgow for a lurid weekend capped by a prescription for antibiotics. On a whim, he then flew to Beirut, where he spent close to a year living with a woman named Camera and her two children. He couldn't remember how they met or the names of her terminally quiet kids. Quiet, he read as scheming and hateful. He remembered Camera's brother Idris, likely because he had the best hash, and drove Bobby around in a gold 1977 Cadillac Calais, which drew the attention of women on the beach at Junier. Idris had no respect for his sister, but that had nothing to do with her, outside of the fluke of her being born a woman. He was basically just a piece of shit, something that didn't particularly bother Bobby. He considered whether his involvement with Camera was simply a result of her brother's ability to give him access to the inaccessible, places and scenarios unavailable to Westerners. He tried to remember her face but failed. He knew they fucked but couldn't remember her body. When people die or vanish, their voice is usually the first thing forgotten. But with Camera, her voice was what he remembered best, particularly her scream, which she often unleashed on her kids and brother. It was possible she might have told Bobby he'd stolen the best years of her life, but she only expressed her anger in Arabic. He wouldn't have taken her seriously, though. Ten months isn't even a year. Idris remembered more clearly, wished they'd stayed in touch, then realized the stupidity of the wish. There was nothing Idris could have done for Bobby once he was back in America, other than bother his ear with angry relayed messages from his sister. You can't, trans- you can't transport hashish and a vintage caddy through fiber optic cables, no matter what people say about modern technology. Relocating to a foreign city dramatically lowers the bar when it comes to new friendships. In the end, Idris was an idiot who sold bootleg DVDs to pay for steroids. It hadn't taken Bobby long in Beirut to get a job working, quote, off the books for the American embassy. He couldn't recall what he'd done there other than disabling the brakes on the car of a German diplomat one morning before sunrise. Whatever work he had done seemed to increase his value at the Defense Department once he returned home. His clearance level was bumped up a notch, and he was given a third false passport, this one with a name he actually liked. Before bed that night, he tried his best to summon memories of Katerina, to whom he had been married for six years. There certainly would have been moments of true happiness, joy, and comfortable companionship, but he could only remember parts of a trip to Belgrade and Katerina's smile behind the lens of his camera. He remembered marriage counseling and her reasonable sobbing. Drifting off to sleep, he found that his mind kept returning to sex. He struggled to recall whether or not she had orgasms from oral sex. If she shaved her pussy with a clipper or trimmed it with scissors, he could not recall the lines or colors of her vagina. He dreamt about Beirut that night. People don't realize Lebanon has bears. He'd once been struck by the beauty of the Syrian brown bear, the smallest of all brown bears in the world. In the morning, Bobby awoke having forgotten of small bears, having forgotten about Jamie and her ill-fitting family, of his time with Camera, Katerina, and any other woman whose names were lost to him, but whose lives he'd undoubtedly damaged. Brushing his teeth, he chose to look in the mirror, something he rarely did, typically preferring to stare at the drain in the sink to see what came out of the holes in his face.
He was 46 and looked it, not, quote, good for his age, but simply his age. If anything, he looked worse for wear. Karma can remodel a face as much as any plastic surgeon. He experienced a rare moment of guilt and shame, trying to rub a wrinkle out of his forehead. It sometimes took close to an hour for his elastin to kick in, and he'd often arrive at work with the creases of his pillow still clearly visible on his cheeks. He realized that getting up and falling down had defined his entire adult life outside of work. More specifically, a woman would assist him in getting up, and in her attempts to keep him upright, she'd weaken, eventually dropping him and herself. Women who loved themselves would only tolerate this painful modern dance that was loving him for so long. Women who didn't know they deserved more than he offered would stay, endlessly hitting the floor and getting back up, hoping that one day he'd be able to stand on his own, perhaps even help them become vertical when the experience of living hammered them into the ground. He reached into his left nostril and pulled out as many hairs as he could fit between his thumb and forefinger. It hurt, but scarcely enough to feel like a commensurate measure of penance. He wanted to call these women from his past and apologize, then thought hearing his voice and fumblingly inarticulate remorse would only cause them more pain. Like most amends, it would only serve to make him feel better. He wondered if there was anything he could do to make it up to these women, innocent and loving women, from whose lives he'd stolen precious years, years which could have contained much more joy. The answer was the same as it was with similar questions he'd ask himself about managing his past, to put a gun inside his mouth and blow the back of his head off. There might be a brief moment where these women he'd heard could sense his absence from the universe, and he imagined them taking a deep breath, a breath full of air, sweeter than any they'd inhaled before, his brains on the wall for just one deep inhalation of cotton-candied oxygen. Like most people enamored of themselves, Bobby decided against this fantasy solution, with the excuse that he'd botched the job, envisioning himself as a quadriplegic in a wheelchair, having his ass wiped by a 400-pound male nurse named Dwayne, or Dwayne II, or Big Rick. Stuffing some toilet paper up his slightly bloody nostril, he drank a cup of coffee and got into his car, lighting a cigarette as he backed out of the driveway. 2. Jamie had always been a precocious child. Her parents and her parents' friends, her aunts and uncles, her babysitters and grandparents all said so. When used to describe a child, precocious is typically seen as derogatory, carrying such negative connotations as overconfidence, self-assertion, conceitedness and pretension. In reality, and according to the Cambridge English Dictionary, precocious means, quote, especially of children, showing mental development or achievement much earlier than usual, end quote. Positive, classic example, quote, a precocious child, she went to university at the age of 15, end quote. Negative, modern example, quote, a precocious child behaves as if they are much older than they are, end quote. A precocious little brat. As time moves forward, annihilating all that stands in its way, language as the primary form of human expression in turn becomes more annihilating. Ultimately, it's weaponized in the service of its speaker. Instead of maintaining its inherent integrity and to some extent sacredness, as human beings become more selfish and insecure, the language they employ becomes more narrow and punishing. 
The contemporary negative usage of precocious says far more about the speaker than of the spoken of. Jamie made her parents, her parents' friends, her aunts and uncles, her babysitters and grandparents uncomfortable with her early signs of exceptional intelligence. Daily, children are born who can't be in a room that may once have hosted a peanut. They will instantly perish. At a time when something as simple as the peanut is seen as a grave threat to human life and liberty, it comes as no surprise that a supremely gifted child can be perceived as a potential weapon of mass destruction. Exemplifying the cliché of the genius child, by the age of seven, Jamie could play piano and violin expertly and had written two sonatas. She spoke fluent French, Spanish, and Cantonese. She taught herself how to do these things, and not with much difficulty. Her parents were intellectually average, but above average neglectful. When a teacher at her school suggested her needs weren't being met, her parents were all too happy to approve a scholarship and relocation to a preparatory school in Chicago one that groomed children to enter university before they entered puberty. Jamie had an aunt there, an alcoholic painter named Cecilia, who never had kids and never should have. It was through Cecilia that Jamie learned her father was her uncle and her mother was her aunt, which explained why at two years old, she'd undergone surgery to eliminate webbing between her toes. She left school at 14, just before finishing two PhDs. One in, one in cognitive psychology and the other in psycholinguistics. She spent four years in relative seclusion with Cecilia, reading everything she could get her hands on and paying extremely close attention to her aunt's relationships with men. At 18, Jamie married Dr. Hank Gathers, a professor from Princeton. He'd visited her the previous year with questions about a paper she'd published at 13 on telepathy in amphibians of the Ivory Coast. At 21, she filed for divorce and moved to California with her sizable settlement money. Within the first 10 minutes of Gather's initial meeting with her, Jamie noticed he was wearing a vintage Rolex 6262 Daytona. Amongst the books in her aunt's home, there were many Sotheby's auction catalogs. Two years previous, the same watch had sold for almost $100,000. One year after their marriage, they were divorced. In the born identity, Jason Bourne, Matt Damon, enters a restaurant. He tells his companion, Marie, Franca Patente, that he can immediately spot all exits and sight lines, knows who he can fight and how, the most likely place to find a gun, and the license plate number of each car in the parking lot only 30 seconds after arriving. An analog skill unrelated to survival while being hunted by world-class assassins is a comforting thing to have, and Jamie did her best to nurture and develop that skill. She never entertained that her way of navigating the world made her a bad person. It made her a smart one. Besides, good and bad, right and wrong, these were constructs, not truths. At least that's what the Buddha said in all those books she'd read as a kid. And people loved the Buddha. He was always smiling. After arriving in California, Jamie, Jamie ceased to exist on paper for close to 10 years. No bank accounts or tax returns, no phone bills or phone numbers, no addresses, no doctors, no friends or photographs. Her paper on telepathy in amphibians was a text that precipitated her academic abandonment of the visible world. She found she lost interest in things as soon as she mastered them. The piano and violin were followed by the oboe and saxophones, instruments she quickly loathed the sound of. All she really listened to were Husker Du and Fleetwood Mac, 
New languages seemed pointless. Her Finnish and Amharic had never been useful. At one point, she considered translating Finnish literature for money, then learned there was no such thing. She'd read every book, tested every sample, and solved every equation. At 13, she made extra money teaching med students about conversion disorders at John Hopkins. The absolute cruelty of the human mind in relation to the body pushed her away from the physical world. But telepathy and West African frogs, this supercorporeal world, seemed like a logical space to explore. It was clearly less painful than musical instruments and language. On her 14th birthday, she decided there was nothing left that she couldn't teach herself and walked away from Princeton. She would miss her office. Cecilia's house was a hippie museum, but Jamie had her own room, an austere white space containing one single image, the Symbionese Liberation Army poster of Patty Hearst as Tanya. As would happen in California, she disappeared from the documented world and immersed herself in studying the undocumentable one. Puberty was nothing more than an unpleasant awareness and observation of what was happening to her body. They say that Alcoholics Anonymous ruins drinking for the relapsing alcoholic. Similarly, having the expertise of a gynecologist while undergoing gynecological revolution made her uneasy. She never kissed a boy or a girl and never touched herself. She watched it happen the way we watch tragedies unfold on television, with a detached, slightly but not quite genuine sadness. At 11, Jamie felt stung by the irony of her own identity after she was shunned by the literature department at Princeton for publishing a paper criticizing J.D. Salinger's use of children as vessels of genius that existed to proselytize his rudimentary understanding of Eastern religion. That was Brad Phillips reading from his forthcoming novel, The Secret History of the History Channel. Thank you, Brad, very much. Be sure to check out thetalkingbook.org for more readings and full-length audiobooks. Thanks to my main man, Brad Phillips, for the reading, Keegan Grambois, Holler Boys, and Alex Sturgis for the lovely music, and, of course, Dave Burr for the editing job. What a goddamn editor this guy is. If you like or you don't like the sound of my voice, it's Dave's fault. Okay? Talk to Dave. Um, but, you know, you can record your book with us. We'll record your book. We'll make an audio book out of it. You want to read on this podcast? You can do that, too. You can hit me up at chris at talkingbook.pub. That's talkingbook.pub. My name is Chris Hartram, and this is The Talking Book. Uh, thanks to everybody who, uh, who likes it. Talk to you soon. Goodbye. Like a bishop who has forsaken sympathy Chasing sister squares I was lit before I
The storm was passing over, and the window 